One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Churchill, the great orator. A Telegraph podcast in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. Episode 4, The Man Behind the Mask. Gary Oldman and Joe Wright in conversation with Robbie Collin. So I'm here talking to Gary Oldman about his performances, Winston Churchill and Darkest Hours director Joe Wright. Gary, I want to start by asking you about Churchill as an orator and if there were any particular uh, details in the style and method of his speech making that particularly caught your imagination as an actor. The, f- the first thing I worked on was the voice and um, enlisted uh, a singing teacher and opera singer, Richard E. Dean. And he, we worked out on the keyboard the range of Churchill. So from the highest note that he would hit to the lowest. And the cha- partly the challenge of, of playing Churchill, I mean, and there were many, but one of them was, of course, this uh, very iconic sound and uh, a very particular voice that he had, especially in the oratory. Um, If you think of a bad impersonation of Churchill, um, uh, people remember it as this sort of... um, uh, And he's got this sort of... uh, there There is a certain... A certain way that he will express words um, it's almost like a signature and there's a cadence and a rhythm to the way that that he he speaks when he's publicly speaking to and there's a nasality as well so you're you're so that when you're breaking it down as as an actor you're listening for the rhythm and then the and the and the cadence of the, how, how he's expressing it, and then of course he had a slight speech impediment, so he had a lisp, and then uh, also it was a little adenoidal, so it would if that's a word, um, and it would it, it it came down through the nose, and these are the sort of things that you as an actor anyway you 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 sort of pick up on and then you start sort of and then you start sort of really like a muscle you have to exercise you start to work on it every day so i went to uh the 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 the, the speeches but some of them as you know 
were recorded after the event. And I'm not sure whether uh, the BBC went to Chartwell and stuck a microphone under his nose and he was in bed. Um, and so I, I, I was a little uh, presumptuous, but figured that he would not have, in quotes, performed them or spoken them like that in the house, in, in the moment, in front of 600 people. So we get this sort of dry, rather um, repetitive sort of delivery. But I then, I took that as a template and then in, uh, in, the, in the actual performing of them, the speeches, I gave it a little sort of, I gave it a little pinch of Henry V. The biggest nod that I got was uh, from a guy called Michael Bishop, who runs the Churchill Library in Washington, D.C. And he said, you know, wow, we, we don't really have a recording of him doing them, only... Uh, after the event, but uh, he, he it certainly, uh, as one of the sort of Churchill scholars or Churchill experts, he's, he's certainly, uh, he, he felt he got his money's worth. <laughs> to me, it felt like hearing the live versions of songs that I knew the studio recordings of very well, but there was a new kind of friction and spark to them that I, that I hadn't heard before. And it's interesting you mentioned that, the lisp, and the adenoidal aspect of the voice, because those are things that in, in impersonations of Churchill I hadn't previously picked up on. And what I love about what you do with this performance is it's not a straight impersonation. It's very much your take as an actor on, on Churchill as a character. It has to be ultimately a creation rather than an impersonation. Apart from, the, obviously, the, the reading material on him, which is, I mean, voluminous. I mean, I'm still reading about him and will continue to read about him until my last breath, I think. Um, the, uh, my, my curiosity about him um, is such that uh, it will extend and beyond just Darkest Hour and the, and, and the film. I'd even like another crack at him maybe with uh, the conferences, you know, and have Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt sort of dividing up the world, maybe down the line, you know, and play him at the end of the war. I just absolutely loved playing him so much. But the key to me was going to the newsreel footage. And the revelation was that here was this man who was so dynamic so full of life, so full of energy, marching ahead, moving through space with this fixity of purpose, this man on a mission with this sparkle in his eye, a cherubic face that you, 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 you almost felt that any moment he could turn to the cameraman and wink, you know. He, and that was so removed from this curmudgeon, this man born in a bad mood, you know, dropping cigar ash on his waistcoat, you know, and shuffling around in his carpet slippers. This was a dynamo of a character. And, 
and in the in the working on you know working on him that was the thing that uh whatever hesitation that i had about playing an icon or a mythologized figure uh, or and the fact that other very wonderful actors had played it before the thing that excited me was discovering that and thinking that's who i want to play this man with a with a real glint in his eye and a humor there's actually one very very key piece of footage um that for me it kind of unlocked unlocked the door he's giving a speech i th is probably it's probably uh, 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 just after the war, I would think, and I, I, I saw it so long ago now that I, that I can't remember, but it was one of these speeches that he was giving to some guild, you know, and it was a big packed house, and um, he gets a slight uh, a frog in his throat, and he reaches for a glass of water, and he takes a sip of this water, and then with a big smile on his face says, I judge often do that. And he brings the house down, you know, because they know he drinks, you know, and he and he lived that up, uh, I and played it up, you know, like uh, like Dean Martin used to do. It was a real moment. Uh, it was a few seconds, but you just go, "There's the man. There he is. There he is." You know, that is self-effacing and has got. Uh, you know, uh, just a wonderful humour. In terms of capturing that glint and also the um, the cherubic look that you described earlier, did prosthetics, was that always going to be a part of this role? Because, you know, to have done that through this extra layer on top mm. of your, your, you know, your natural face, uh, what particular challenges did that present? Well, initially, when they first approached me about it, I thought, oh, come on, I mean, don't be ridiculous. You know, how, how, how would one, how am I going to do that? And it had never obviously been on a, I don't have a bucket list of characters to play, but, um, you know, Dracula was never on my list of things to play, but it came across my desk and it was Francis Ford Coppola, and I thought, oh, well, that would be interesting. Um, so these things come in, they're incoming calls. Yet the challenge of the physicality was always going to be an issue. I had worked with the, um, the, the makeup designer, Kazuhiro Suji. I'd worked with him 20 years ago. He had headcast me for something that I, I actually ended up not, not, not being in, um, but I like, had followed his work. He has since retired from the uh, movie industry and now is a sort of, uh, he's a bit uh, kind of like, um, do you know the guy Ron Muick who yes. does those? Yeah. Kaz, Kazuhiro does these portraits and they're hyper-realistic and they're huge heads of people that he makes. And I knew his work and said to Joe Wright, you know, I'm nearly 60. I was not going to put on 70 pounds. Uh, I, I'd spend the rest of my life losing weight. Also, the health issue involved. So I said, look, the only way to go is going to be makeup, and this is really the only man on the planet who could who could even remotely pull it off. If we can get him, that's the guy. 
And it wasn't completely contingent on Kazoo's availability, but it was a it it was very important to to get him because I felt that he would be the only one who could who could do it. And um, and the stars aligned, and um, and and it and it and it worked out. It was a trial and error. We went for a, a version that was sort of what I call full Churchill. It, it, it was very good, but it looked a little odd. It looked like Churchill and Gary Oldman had had this sort of strange love child. It was it was it, it was it was strange, but um, but we knew that tweaking and pulling back. At one point, I think he recast, resculpted the jowls, um, and it was uh, over time. We I, I I think we got there. Joe, last time we spoke, it was about a year ago, and it was the morning that you'd just taken delivery of Gary Oldman's facial prosthesis, and you were in a buoyant mood, and now uh, now we know why. I was very excited that day. I mean, we had, we had spent, I think, six months uh, working on the prosthetics for Gary's transformation, and, uh, and it had been, you know, there'd been many iterations at first, uh, we'd gone too far and he looked like he had a dead chicken on his face and and then we didn't go far enough and so finally I hope we uh, hit a sweet spot where he looked enough like Churchill but still the prosthetics allowed access for the audience to engage with his performance. It was enormously liberating. It was the most free I've ever been in front of a camera. Hi, so. While I was hidden, so I could hide, I think that 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 for sure. There's a certain if you've ever been to a fancy dress, if ever fancy dress party or a Halloween thing, you wear a mask and there's a sort of liberation to it. You feel something. You're less inhibited. It gives you a confidence. So I think that was an aspect of it. How important was getting Churchill's physical presence because that presence is an enormous part of his myth as a, as a politician, as a historical figure. It's interesting, you know, I think he's one of the first politicians to really understand branding uh, before it was, you know, before it was a thing. And, uh, and so the kind of, the, the, the silhouette, the brand of Churchill is, is certainly one of the most um, iconic in political history. So you needed to get it right, but also there are certain you know, misconceptions about the way he looked. Uh, at this point in the war, he wasn't nearly as fat as he was at the end of the war. I think he might have been a kind of nervous eater. It was important to get the right figure, really, um, but also to look beyond the, the caricature. Why do you think that brand's endured in the way that it has done? Because, and not just in terms of his physical form, but the the idea of the cadence in his speeches, you know, these are the way in which Churchill spoke. Politicians today still try to emulate that with, I mean, with varying degrees of success. He was a great self-publicist, unfortunately, because I think people have still tried to, if they're not tried to kind of copy his brand, they've still trying to, they're still trying to brand themselves and politics has become more and more about, you know, um, personality rather than principles. Um, Churchill had both. I guess 
you know, he 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 became the icon, the figurehead, the 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 symbol of of British tenacity and the bulldog breed, as they put it. You know, we like to identify ourselves with with him. Joe loves rehearsal, so we had four weeks where we where we got up and physicalized and vocalized the text and worked out a little if there were tweets or problems or historical things that weren't necessarily you know accurate or questions or whatever we we chewed it around and it was great to work with uh, Kristen and uh, you know, Malcolm Story, Stephen Delane, Sam West, um, to really to really move it around. You don't get that in film. I, I have been in productions where I have met the guy, you know, the director the night before going on the set. You meet an actress that morning and she's playing your wife. And you have to sort of convey a you know a twelve year marriage or you know and you've and you've really only known her half an hour. It's very weird how we make movies um and i'm I'm amazed that any of them are any good um the way we the way we put them together um I had eight months to work on this. Um, I learned all the speeches first, the big speeches I got down. Um, and by the, time I, I, by the time I got to rehearsal, I knew it like a play, so I didn't really have to search for the words. They, they become... Um, they're just sort of in your, in your DNA. It, it's a strange. It's a strange process. And you were saying about imperson, like not doing an impersonation. You, you get to, you know, we got all this, these wonderful sort of behind the velvet rope tours of uh, Chartwell and Blenheim and the War Room and Downing Street, and with the listening to the recordings, watching the footage, reading the the the, the books on Churchill. You take all of that and somehow metabolize it. You you take those experiences and then and, and then turn turn the the intellectual side of it into a sensation. It's about a feel it's about feeling and sensation. I can't really describe it beyond that. It, it when you're looking for that sound that that he made, it, it you've got to you just have to feel it somewhere in your mouth, you know. And it, it, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. It's just what, I guess it's just what we do. When you were looking at those qualities, what was it that then made you make the mental leap to Gary Oldman, who is not, you know, wonderful actor that he is, is not the person that most people, I think, would instinctively cast as Churchill? Yeah, the Churchill that I saw, contrary to um, a lot of other depictions of him, you know, he's often depicted as this kind of grumpy curmudgeon, as if he'd been born with in a, in a bad mood, you know. And the Churchill that I saw in my research and and in the screenplay uh, was someone who 
was kind of manic with energy. Uh, he thought at 500 miles an hour, no one could keep up with him. He had this kind of intensity um, uh, that was so intense that sometimes it would break down into utter collapse. Um, uh, I, I don't like to diagnose him, but if I, if, I, if I was pushed to, I would say that he was probably a manic depressive, you know. Gary is someone, as we know from all of his kind of extraordinary performances, is someone capable of that level of intensity and, and vigour. Also, he's like, you know, I mean, he's the best actor in the world as far as I'm concerned, and so why wouldn't one want him to, to, to play the role? And I think the essence is far harder to fake than the, than the exterior. He fully inhabits the role, and he spent six months, if not more, in, in his kind of studio at the back of his house, practicing being Winston Churchill. I mean, literally practicing, walking up and down, saying the lines, thinking about it, trying it again. Uh, he would send me recordings of himself making those speeches, you know, months before we ever started. And so he was able to completely uh, lose himself in that, in that character um, to the extent where it was difficult to, to tell where Gary ended and Churchill began or vice versa, you know. Um, it's by no means an impersonation. It's very much an inhabitation, a kind of shape-shifting inhabitation. Given that you're a director who's known for using long rehearsal periods, I mean long in filmmaking terms, how, uh, what point in the rehearsals did Gary start wearing the costumes, the prosthetics? Day one. Right. Literally. I mean, we were a bit naughty, but it was very exciting. On the, first, on the first day of rehearsals, I always start with a read-through, so the entire cast is called, even if they just have one line or, or whatever. Um, and uh, Gary decided that he was going to come in full makeup and costume. So everyone arrived, everyone was sat around this big table uh, waiting for Gary Oldman, and instead of Gary Oldman, uh, Winston Churchill arrived. And it was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant move, because immediately, Everyone up their game. Everyone understood what they were what they were getting involved with. They, I think, literally most of them all kind of stood to attention as he walked in and 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 gasped. Churchill, the great orator, in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. You spoke about getting to know those speeches very, very well before filming. And what really interested me about the screenplay is it's built around those speeches. You know, you, you start with the maiden speech to Parliament as Prime Minister. Then you have the, the, the BE Men of Valour, yeah. the broadcast, the first broadcast yeah. to the nation. And then it ends, of course, post-Dunkirk with the We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches. Um, what did you see developing in Churchill's character between those three speeches that you were able to... I mean, perhaps even stuff that you saw on your tours of the historical locations and your reading that perhaps didn't even take place within the span of the film itself, but you were able to draw on and, 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 and sort of plant seeds in these speeches and think, okay, so this, this is perhaps chiming with that and this, is, this somehow relates to or foreshadows something still to come. 
and what I think is particularly particularly sort of masterful not only not only in the writing but also in the in the oratory in the in the in the in the speaking of them he has a, there's a set of defeats and he has to be a modern word i guess now we use we call it transparency but he has to be sort of honest and yet always support the theme of victory. And that's a very hard thing to do in the final big speech of, um, you know, we shall, we shall fight them on the beaches. For instance, he has to let us know that there is a defeat in France. But don't despair, because hope is around the corner. And ultimately, we will win. And he's so he's doing these. He's doing this sort of very. Uh, it's it's a sort of very delicate kind of juggling act. He's doing. He has to deliver, as 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 the information is coming to him, and he is sort of transposing that and working that and turning it and turning it into basically information not only for the not only for the the cabinet the government but also for the british people um it's always that there's also a great uh, sense of of it's like a counter thing of buoyancy and hope and encouragement and 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 an ultimate victory and i think that 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 is it sort of that's at least one of its themes running run, running through them the way he can give you a blow he can hit you in the face and then uh, it's like he can sort of hit you in the face and then tickle you in the belly i don't know what it is it's like a wonderful thing he does you know um if that's a is that a good way of describing it? I don't know, yeah. His faults were often his greatest attributes. Um, uh, taking Gallipoli as an example, you know, um, it was his will that pushed that policy through. Um, it was a good idea to start with, then everyone prevaricated, uh, they lost the element of surprise, and yet Churchill nevertheless pushed the policy and it ended in disaster and the deaths of, of, of many, many men. Um, uh, it's that same will that then stood up against Hitler in, 19, uh, in 1940 and refused to sign that peace deal finally. Um, it's that same will that stood behind the Battle of Britain. Um, uh, and so I find that kind of fascinating, the way in which often our faults become our, uh, our attributes. It's really interesting to me how over the course of the film, which is built around three speeches that were made over the course of four weeks, right? You can see that will becoming more concentrated and solidifying in the face of this opposition from abroad and also in his own cabinet. Um, can you tell me a bit about what building a film just around these three speeches rather than giving us Churchill's life story, what particular essence you were able to get at about him by focusing on this very, very narrow slice? I mean, very eventful, but very narrow slice of his life. I think details are often more telling than, than kind of broad strokes, really. Um, at, the, at the war rooms, there is a chair in which he sat 
uh, in the war cabinet room. And, um, and it's got this kind of gash in the arm, in the wood of the arm of the chair. Have you sat in the chair or been in the chair at the war room? I haven't. The curator let me sit in that, sit in that chair. And, you, you know, you were talking earlier about built, building a character or putting a character together. Um, on the left-hand arm of the chair are these divots from his fingernails, like literally, like deep scratches where he was like doing this. And on the right-hand side of the chair is all the scratches from his ring, from the tapping. And, and it wasn't like he was in that chair every day during the war. He was only down there intermittently. Um, but that, that behaviour is in now, it, it's a, like a living thing, you know, it's like in this piece of furniture. And that can tell you so much about the psychology of an individual. I, I wouldn't have discovered that if he hadn't have let me in and sit down. And the moment that you put your hand there like that, you can feel all these ridges where his fingernails would scratch at the chair. That detail tells me so much more about Churchill's character and what he was going through at that time, that kind of nervous tension and energy. Um, tells me so much more than, than you know, chapters of a, of, a, of a big biopic. But also looking at this specific character of, of, of trying to understand who this person was, um, rather than, you know, taking him off the plinth um, uh, in Parliament Square, where he kind of surveys the traffic, um, uh, taking him down off that plinth and trying to meet him as a, as a human being, you know, and therefore learn from him. My appreciation of Winston Churchill, yes, I knew a bit about Churchill. I've got a book on my shelf I've had for years of stories and the witty quotes and, and, and all of that. But when you really look at the achievement in, a, in one life, you know, he, he, it was like he lived the life of five men. The, you know, the 50 books, I mean, more words than Shakespeare and Dickens put together, you know, 540-something paintings, 16 exhibitions at the Royal Academy, the Nobel Prize for Literature, you know, every, almost taking, you know, he occupied every major position, almost every, every one in politics, a prime minister twice, took us through the war, um, was commended in the First World War, you know, it, it's mind, it's mind-boggling the the achievement i can't imagine you meet the king and he says will you accept and you go yeah and and there there you are you're the prime minister you inherit now this mess an unintentional one i i i i i like to think that that chamberlain was the right man at the wrong time and Churchill was the right man at the right time because he wanted, don't we all want that? You know, that's what a legacy, you know, peace is a wonderful thing. But Churchill comes in, he inherits this mess and then very soon 
he's got a, a, a possibility of an invasion, an imminent invasion by Nazi Germany. He's got all, the whole entire British army that are trapped in Dunkirk um, with, with the Germans advancing on them. He's got resistance in his own cabinet. And he's also got to take care of domestic policy. I mean, it just doesn't go away because there's a war on. My God. And then, and then, of course, the famous letter, which we use at the beginning of the movie, where Kristen comes in, Clementine says to him, you know, you're being intolerable, and I want people to appreciate you because you're a much nicer man than you're being right now. We stole it from somewhere else. It was later on in the war when he was really under the gun and he was really snapping at people and shouting and being quite a bully. And uh, she wrote the letter, I think, didn't send it, tore it up, and then decided to give it to him and then stuck it together with sellotape and then handed it to him. Look at what he was facing, you know. I, he's he's in, in, incomparable. It, there's no one, I can't, I can't think of anyone, you know, Lincoln, perhaps, Washington, you know, um, no, no one can touch him. There also seem to be moments where events, fictionalised events in the script, seem to foreshadow things that happen mm. in, in the future. The encounter on the underground train, when he's on the way to Westminster and he stops to talk to the electorate for a while. Yeah. Um, now, that's a fictionalised event, but you have the, uh, the the situation with the little girl saying to him, you know, we shall never give up. Mm. And to me, that was almost like planting a seed for the the school commencement speech that was to come years later, the famous never, never, never give up line. It's an Achilles heel for some, you know, the, the underground. Uh, but you're right in as much that it is a, a, it's a foreshadowing of his relationship with the British people. And I, I personally think it's... It, you know, is it sentimental? Is it sort of a bit on the sentimental side? Yeah, a tad. But I thought that it was a very lyrical way of showing that relationship with the people in a... In a you know, and it's, it's like a little candy bar, you know, there you are. Um, and it does, um, and it, I think it was, I'd I, I like to think it was intentional that, that, that Anthony gives us that little, just a little taste of, um, of, of things to come. Having spoken to Anthony about the script, I'm absolutely certain that that was his design because he was very, very careful about where all these uh, these beats happened, and that this was uh, this seemed very deliberately placed in order to to tee up a life beyond this very short part of Churchill's uh, existence that the film deals with. Yeah, and things come things come into the script. Um, we, I think, the original line to me was, "Are you upset?" And I went to Anthony, I went to Joe, and I said, I found this little quote um, in, a, in, I think it was maybe Elizabeth Nell's diary, who is our, our Elizabeth Layton, Lily James in the movie. And I said, this is just this little reference to him saying, you know, um, I blub a lot. You'll have to get used to it. And he would 
cry over a puppy or a kitten or someone on the street or a kid or, a, you know, a bird with a broken wing or even a dead fish floating to the surface in his pond. Um, and there was a real sort of soft, uh, very vulnerable um, side to him. And, uh, and I suggested, uh, what about that? If she said, are you, you know, are you crying instead of, are you upset? Um, and it was, it, it, you know, you sometimes you just have those opportunities or those moments in a, in a picture where you can go, you know, we don't we don't need to invent a line here. He actually said this, um, so it's a nice little, I think, a nice little touch. It's always nice when you can put in a little bit of uh, even uh, even at the beginning of the of the of the script. Um, it, it was a note of mine that Joe Armstrong uh, says about, you know, Klopp. I love the thing. I like the idea that he gave things pet name. And this was his hole punch. And that was his hole punch. And I guess it was the noise that it made when it punched. You know, and he called it a Klopp. Um, I love uh, it, the cat under the bed. To, it improed. Yeah, to, on the day. The cat was not being a very good actor and wouldn't do what it was told and it would hide under the bed. So I said to Joe, what about if I'm trying to get the cat from under the bed? And he went, oh, I love that. Okay, and we'll keep that. Okay, let's do that. So there are accidents. The, the corgi, the dog, we were doing a wide shot. Uh, we're eating this lunch, maybe three shots in, the dog got off of the sofa, came around to me here and started sort of looking at me and so in the scene I just fed him and then Joe said I love it keep the dog in and then when we went in for the close-up we did the thing with the dog you know every time but uh, it, it some of it's planned and some of it is accidental and it's uh, that that is the that's the that's the fun I mean I I've but I, I I've done that motion capture larky and uh, yeah, you're loose, and it's you know. But but at the end, end of the day, someone's going to paint in you know the sky and make the leaves look really lovely, or they can. You're God, you know. You can make it rain. You can make it snow. You can whatever you want to do. And the great thing about well, that I love about filming is the accidents like that, the things that happen that you can't write, that you can't predict. Um, uh, that's the that 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 I, that that's the exciting thing is that you come to work every day. Yes, you have a script, but basically you have a blank canvas, and you have twelve hours, and you got to make something happen. You got to paint something, um, and uh, so it's thrilling. Elizabeth Nell was one of the secretaries of, of Winston Churchill, who I believe was, may have, may, may have joined him, I think, in the middle of the war and then followed him through until the end and was, I think, one of his favorite secretaries. He had, um, he burned through a few, wore a few out. And um, I'm told that on, um, on a particularly, uh, creative uh, night he would always demand two 
Yes, two, two girls tonight. I'll need a double shift because um, he was going to work until about three or four in the morning. And clearly there's an enormous amount of source material to, to plough through to prepare for something like this. Not only Churchill's own writings, but the writings about him, uh, the recordings, the, you know, the, the newspaper images and reports of the time. Were there any particular telling details in those, even ones that fell out with the scope of the film itself, that you thought, hang on, I can use this? I can somehow just plant this as a seed in what we're doing. His humour, I find, to be wonderfully revealing. I think Winston used humour to combat the more uncomfortable elements of life, um, as we all do. You know, I mean, that's why humour is generally about sex and death, um, the things that make us feel uncomfortable. Every account uh, by those closest to him, all these uh, accounts talk about his humour and how laughter was always just behind the eyes and how he used humour as a defence. Um, and, and, and so that felt very important to me. And which is why, you know, um, because we all do, don't we? We use we use humour in that way, and I think anything that any any movie that doesn't have humour in it isn't really true to life. Was there a particular joke that, when you were reading around, that, that, that just thought, you know, this sums up exactly his particular view of the world? Just how irre irreverential his humour was. I love the one about you know when when his secretary comes to him and tells him that the privy council is outside to see him, and he says. Um, uh, uh, tell the Lord Privy Council I'm stuck in the privy and can only deal with one shit at a time. I like that one. Did your own opinion of Churchill change over the course of making the film? I mean, aside from all the extra things you, you learned about him, uh, the biographical details, your understanding of his position in British culture as this kind of almost mythic figure today? Yeah, I grew to love him. Uh, but I kind of do that with all the characters I make films about. You know, I think my responsibility is almost uh, to to love them and uh, and then express that love um, so that other people can can feel it too. You know, um, so I grew to I grew to love his humanity. I grew to love his uh, his insecurities. Um, I grew to 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 love his uh, empathy for others. Um, I think he was an intensely empathetic person. Um, and I grew to sympathise with the weight of the responsibility that he had on his shoulders, you know. And I think it's important to remember that these people are just human, you know, that they have faults and they have... Uh, and, and that therefore, when they do triumph, as Churchill did, um, that's a human triumph. One doesn't set out to make a... A, a topical film um, that is, you know, relevant. I mean, this, as you you said that you've spoken to Anthony, you know, the seed of the idea came from those, you know, he wrote three speeches over four weeks and Anthony, why? How, how come? What? what? So the, the, the very, the germ of the idea, I mean, is, is six years old and there was no election and there was no Brexit. There were no, all these things in the world weren't weren't around. Uh, even in his own diary, he this 
this back and forth with Halifax. So just how close we came to really is surrender. I mean, they were calling it a peace deal, but it would have essentially, I think, been would have been that's what it was. It was a surrender. Um, they they're reminded of what great leadership and great statesmen looks like, you know. Um, no one could, no one, as she says, no one can put words together like you, sir. Hey, Gary Oldman, thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. Joel, thank you very much indeed. My absolute pleasure. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Churchill, the Great Orator, subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast host. And please do leave us a review. Churchill, the Great Orator, the Man Behind the Mask, was produced by Sue Bowerman. It was a blanket production for The Telegraph. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.